You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Jessica Piazza. Jessica, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Jessica, we're going to talk about your, your work, your writing, um, what's going on, and, and um, you're going to read uh, a little bit today. But, but first, to begin with, uh, you're, you're a writer, you're a poet, you're, you're a teacher, an educator. Um, how, how was the last year for you in terms of – we're talking on December 14th, of course, in 2021. How was the last year for you in terms of, uh, in terms of writing? I mean, I think talking to anyone in December – 14th, 2021, you're going to hear that the last year was bananas in one way or another. But uh, it was not my best writing year. I'm just going to be honest about that. I, um, it, it was a pretty good reading year. <laughs> but I, so for me, and I think everybody has kind of, um, especially artists and writers, they have kind of a multitude of gigs that get them through the day, get them through the, the rent or the mortgage. And for me, I'm a professor at USC, but I also have some side hustles. And of course I write, and I've been working on a few projects, a poetry collection, also a novel, also potentially a memoir or pilot, kind of still figuring out what it's going to be. Um, So I was really in in the zone. Um, I had gotten this residency in Lenox called the Amy Clampett Residency, which is amazing. And I spent half a year in the Berkshires just writing, and I was very in it. And then pretty quickly after I came back, the pandemic hit, and I, I think I just lost steam. Um, I was working so much because I'm an extrovert and a lot of my energy comes from being out in the world with people and I wasn't, so I was like, okay, I'm home, I'm just going to work. But when you work so much and then you don't get to do that thing that allows you to have that much energy, it gets a little bit burned. So I worked more than I had worked in years and years but did not work as much on my writing as I could have. So now I'm kind of jumping back in, which is exciting, but I don't know if, so I don't know if what I'm working on feels as relevant to me right now. I think it's still relevant to the world. Um, the, the manuscript I was working on, specifically poetry, the poetry one called Woman 41, I, I really believe in the content, but I'm a project writer, I write, I get obsessed with something and I start going like nuts on it and I just chew it over and chew it over until it loses its flavor for me, to keep that metaphor going. And I think this one lost flavor for me. So instead of a full-length collection, it's looking more like a chapbook. So that's where I am right now with my writing, finally starting to jump back in. Very excited to pick up a project I'm working on with my friend Heather Amy O'Neill, who I wrote my third book with. We're doing um, a a YA novel in verse, which I'm really excited about. So there are things going on. I'm excited now. I was not excited for about a year and a half. A YA novel in verse. Correct. So that's like an epic epic poem. What what, what does that mean exactly? Um, I guess. I mean, it, it, it is in many ways exactly, exactly what it sounds like. Now, there are actually a decent amount out there of YA novels in verse that have been doing pretty well. They're kind of, um, they're sort of easy reads, clearly. (laughs) Um, But Mahogany Brown did one that was really fantastic. Uh, Gosh, I don't remember what it's called. I think it was uh, Chlorine, Chlorine Sky, I think that's right. Um, And they're just great. Oh, uh, Safia 
what was her name? Elhio, Elhio, did a great one. There, basically, it's imagine the chapters as poems, and then that's it. So the economy of language that comes with poetry, hopefully, you know, depending on what style you're doing, there's some, you know, rhythm to it. There's some really heavy-hitting imagery, uh, but it, it's narrative, and, and it's narrative in chapters. So really... Yeah, it's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, of course, we have the history of this that goes far back. I mean, famously, you know, Anne Carson did it um, in the autobiography of Red, although it was weirder, <laughs> certainly not YA. But, yeah, I'm excited about it. I think, I mean, kids, kids are the best poetry audience because kids are just told that poetry is normal, you know. They're given poetry in school and they're given – and children's books have, you know – are written in verse all the time and then at some point schools decide that the only poetry worth reading once you get to like junior high maybe is from I don't know a couple hundred years ago and so then people stop thinking poetry is relevant so we want to keep it going yeah that's great I know that's that's, that's we do want to keep it going that's so interesting right that that's how um that's how things change. I mean, with, with artists like that too, you know, kids may draw or have fun when they're, when they're young and then they get to high school mm-hmm. and they realize they can't draw a shoe and that they shouldn't be <laughs> artists. But, but, but of course, then they get to college and they realize nobody can draw and, you know, it's a, <laughs> you, you never realize that initially. Um, so, but imagine so you're working on, just, just as an aside though, because this is so important to me, I agree and that's about your own output, but like think about how much more I mean, tragic is a sort of um, dramatic word for it. But really, there is some level of tragedy. This isn't even about saying to a kid you can be a writer. This is about being a reader. Like, this isn't even about having to produce something. It's what you're allowing into your world to think is relevant. And so if you think about it, I, I just I try to imagine if every student in high school was told that the last novel written that's relevant to them was, like, Dickens, like, who would go on to read fiction? Nobody. <laughs> like, like, a few people. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, it seems like the poetry that, that kids are exposed to in junior high and high school all stopped maybe with, like, Frost. <laughs> or, you know, you, and, and, and obviously, thankfully, there's moves to diversify curriculum, so you get some lengths and hues. But, like, you're not getting contemporary poetry the same way that you are at least getting a sprinkling of contemporary fiction in high school. And so... Of course people aren't reading poetry or thinking it's a viable medium. Of course they're not. And it just, I don't know, it gets me frustrated, and so I like to talk about it. So don't do that. Give your kids contemporary poetry, or actually just read contemporary poetry. Nobody does. It's funny. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to shut it down now. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I I think that's good to talk about because um, I read a lot of poetry, and that's been fairly recent for me, and and I think that, uh, yeah, I, I didn't grow up with that, although my mother did read poetry to me, but certainly in school, and I have a son who's, who's in high school, and, and, as, and as great as the novels are that they're reading in our contemporary, yeah, they're not touching poetry. They're not touching it. Right. I mean, maybe little bits here and there, but they're poetry. certainly not understanding how it's, how it's contemporary and it's relevant. Oh, right. If your mother read you poetry, though, was she reading you poetry that was coming out at the time she was reading it to you? That's the question. Uh, well, I, I remember her reading Langston Hughes is what she read to me. And I, I, Which, of course, wasn't published then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas, like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't their published kids, then. Harry then, then yeah. 
<laughs> you know? Right, right. She wasn't reading me Harry Potter. Um, but, yeah, but it was, it was Langston Hughes. It was other poems that, I, yeah, weren't contemporary poets. Well, maybe that is a contemporary poet, but it was. Right, but no, I mean um, contemporary, like now. <laughs> like living, living, modern. yeah. Living yeah. poets, yeah. So, I don't know. That's an important thing to me. I do, one of my side things that I do is um, I facilitate book clubs for people around Los Angeles. Um, and they all read contemporary fiction, literary fiction for the most part. But once a month, and then sometimes I do this outside group, I do a poetry drop-in book group. And I just curate my own anthology for them. And my barrier to entry is for poems that make this anthology monthly, which is it's about 25 pages of poems, I would say, at a time. It's like accessible <laughs> poems that, of course, are relevant kind of for the demographic that I work toward, but also that have this real gut punch and are really relevant and make sense right now. And honestly, I've collected them all in this Google Doc at this point. I probably have like 170 pages of poems that anybody right now could read and not be intimidated by and would feel are just really relevant to the times and are really beautiful. I mean, they won't love every one. That's not how poetry works. But that makes sense. And I just wish that that's what people read when they thought of poetry. Instead of Yeats, not that I dislike Yeats, love Yeats, but that's not now, <laughs> you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I suppose in some ways, you know, people don't know where where to look, right? I mean, you know, yes. per- personally, I look in, in stores and use bookstores, but also there's a number of, of great presses that are always turning out, um, uh, you know, Great poetry, right? That 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 is, is is largely unknown by people who maybe aren't poets or writers. You know, these these small presses everywhere that that can't be making that much, but that all they do is produce poetry, Absolutely. books, small chapbooks of, of contemporary poets. So, um, yeah, I mean, just well, start with the same way you would start with anything. Go to the New Yorker, read the poems in there. I mean, I'm not obviously that kind of curation is in and of itself problematic if that's going to be people's whole understanding but that's I mean people need doorways in so you can go to certain mainstream media and get poems there and be like oh this is something I like maybe I'll google search this person and see if there are other poets like this or something you know or just poetry magazine which has its problems also but at least it's a starting point to to that world so let's talk about your poems I'd love you to read one I know you 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 said you would um, read a few what is the the first poem you're going to read so uh, I think I'll do a little one from Woman 41. The whole idea was basically a manuscript that dived into what it's like to be a 41-year-old woman right here, right now. Now, of course, this is pre-pandemic, so that is what it is. But uh, some of them were from my own point of view. Some of them were famous women who were 41 at the same time I am. And then some of them were women who were that age, my age, taken from news headlines or magazine headlines. And for those ones, I would take the headline. Um, They were all called Woman 41, but um, in this case, this one has uh, a headline under it. Uh, The headline was, Waste Not, She Cut Her Weekly Trash Down So Much It Fits Into a Small Jar. So that was the impetus for this one. So this is Woman 41. She wants to be good. The world is not. Its food is rot not happened yet. It judges itself on sheer amount. 
It puts all its stock in stockpiled wants. Good women, she knows, learn to keep accounts, to become less, to winnow down. They learn the more they are is mess, a shoe all plastic, thin the voice. She's good. When she goes, she'll leave no trace, her skin and bones and tendons ash, her fingernails and teeth erased, all turned to fertile dust, then used. Nothing left of the body that once was her host, even her mind, compost. Thank you. Uh, this is from this is from the collection Woman Forty One that you're working on now. Right. Yeah, that's it. So, so tell me a little bit about that because you said you said earlier that was this is a manuscript, but it was interrupted. It was. Yeah, it was going to be full length. Um, that was sort of my conception of it. Um, but now, I think that. I, I, love, I love the poems that came of it. I really do. And I'm happy and I want to put them out in the world. But I, it just sort of interrupted is great. Now it's like woman interrupted, comma 41. <laughs> that was funny that you said woman interrupted. But right. um, yeah, I, I just think that it's not where my mind is now. I think my mind is, I mean, it was a broader sort of inquiry for me, this book. Like most of my books have been very um, internal. Um, and this was a broader inquiry in that some of the poems were internal, but I was also looking at kind of a cross-section of women. And I was, I'm probably going to say the Western world because I English-speaking world um, that were really representative of themes that were happening for, you know, for, for women in this time, not just people in this time. And, you know, there are questions of just aging having children, getting married, or, you know, sexual identity. Um, I myself am bisexual, so it's a whole thing um, in terms of that inquiry. I'm also divorced. There's divorce in there. Um, But there's also just how the world is seeing you at this weird age where you're not quite, let's say, aged out of sort of uh, relevance in terms of being – a woman who can produce for the world. You're still maybe hot and you're still maybe can have kids and all the, you know, sort of patriarchal things that assign worth to women, but you're not quite, you're not quite in and you're not quite out. So for me, that was a really interesting time to, to delve into. So that's where this kind of came from. But right now I think that my view is almost even further out. So I'm kind of still conceiving what I want to do with that next. And I don't think it's continued this one right now. So it's, I mean, writers work differently. For me, if I'm not obsessing on it, I just go next. <laughs> That's cool. And so, so let's hear another poem. Is this poem also from Woman 41? If you'd like, sure. Sure, um, or whatever you, whatever you want to read. But um, Yeah, why not? Okay, let's, let's do a fun divorce poem. Why not? Um, that's where my head really was before the pandemic so I'm just going to do it so this one is also called Woman 41 Uh, if they don't have a headline or a name then those are sort of the me poems I guess in there so Woman 41 you've split and the worst of it is the cliche the garbage left to decay in its liner the dinner dishes half as many laying in the sink unnoticed you're loath to do the chores that were always his The floors, your hated task he rarely did, regardless, though you asked. Unmopped, you still can't stop doing nothing more than exactly what you did before, except, of course, now with despair, 
a bit less grace, a lot less care isn't there. So the screws will not stay tight. When he was, the truth was the hidden weight around his neck, trailing him out to the deck that he never swept. Before he left, regret wasn't kept at hand. It nestled instead in the closet dark with the light bulbs and the change in jars. Now it covers the house like a tarp, like a shroud, like a cloud of dust. You can't clean it up, but you must. Yeah. Thank you. I don't know if I describe that as a, as a fun divorce poem. <laughs> but, um, but that's a nice way to frame divorce, too. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's such a powerful experience, and it's nice to have some levity to it. Yeah, and when, it's always funny to think about the things in divorce that are the cliches. It's like, oh, you know, now you have to do all the things in the house yourself. And, you know, again, because this book is kind of exploring, like, worse in terms of the kind of world we live in, misogyny and patriarchy and all these other things, it's things like take out the garbage. It's like, what a cliche that you would be upset that you have to do it now, <laughs> you know? So it kind of, that became a kind of jumping off point for it. So, so what's ha- what will happen with this manuscript? You're on, you're on to something else. Um, this, this will remain unfinished for the time being, and this is kind like of the, the pandemic project, will, right? Yes, I would like to think that it will not remain unfinished so far as I will finish it as a smaller project than it was initially conceived as. And I believe in that. I believe in that point of view. I don't think that people should keep running with, you know, a ball that they don't want to play with anymore. <laughs> So I, I feel like for me, that is my motivating factor. I'm not the kind of writer who writes every day and who has that kind of practice. Writing is not yoga for me in that way. It's, uh, I'm just, I, I do what I'm loving at the moment. And, and again, I love these poems, but I don't love the idea of keeping writing them. So I think I'll just make it into a chapbook length manuscript as opposed to a full length collection and chop it around a little bit. And we'll see how the response is to it. And um, and and so, in terms of education, I mean, it was fascinating talking about the fact that yeah, poetry isn't isn't read enough, isn't talked about enough, um, but it also seems so important. I, I I read a book by a philosopher. I think I might be saying his name wrong, Bernardo Biffo, um, and an Italian philosopher, and he had a book on uh, on breathing. It was called, and and it was and he kind of was making the, the point that, look, we're, the world's in this kind of awful place and, um, and capitalism is, is crushing everything and it's as though we can't breathe. And, uh, and he said, you know, the, the antidote to this, the answer to this is poetry, um, that we have to read more poetry. And he, was, he didn't get into it that much more in the whole book, but I thought, you know, that's so, that's so kind of amazing, right? That's just an interesting sort of notion um, what do, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think of poetry as something that is, I don't know if that's a, a transformative thing he's saying, but that's something that, that is absolutely necessary to, to kind of manage our, our, our lives, so to speak. I'm smiling so big at that question. So my dissertation when I was doing my PhDs at USC, my field was cognitive poetics, which is sort of the... Uh, it's kind of an intersection between it's the, like the neurology and physiology of reading, right? And how that affects 
you as a reader, but also how it can affect you as a writer when you're crafting work. And so I read a lot of science, way too much science, um, uh, having to do with how we how we how we react to reading. I mean, anything from like how we react to specific phonemes to how. Uh, I mean, it's also, it was, it was seeing things on the page too. So it was white things like white space, but rhythm, certain rhythms. And there was a lot of really interesting science about how poetry slows your heart rate. And it's a, it makes perfect sense. I mean, all of these, all of what we understand now as, as poetry comes from things like chanting, <laughs> right? Comes from things like ceremony, which of course are supposed to bring bonding and connection. And that requires a certain amount of, physiological slowing down, right? They say the iambic rhythm comes from the heartbeat. I have a tattoo of an iamb on my left foot, of an iambic foot oh. right on my, my left side <laughs> because that's where my heart is. And, yeah, it, it is not just sort of conceptually crucial <laughs> to, to getting by when things are stressful and we are in, you know, late-stage capitalism end times, but also physiologically. I mean, we're so into – you know, again, we're into yoga and meditation and all these things, and I'm so for them, but this is another version of it that is actually engaging the body and the mind at the same time as opposed to a practice of sort of clearing the mind, which is also wonderful and beautiful, but they can live in tandem and really do great things for us. It's con contemplative in that way, but also physiological, physiologically beneficial. Oh, I love that. I'm so, so I love glad I, I, I did ask. So, this, so that's what you did your dissertation on. And yes. That's so powerful. It's because extra we don't hear that enough. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but still that's cool because we don't hear that enough about poetry. And, that's, and isn't that partly what the educational issue is, that teachers and institutions aren't thinking that way, that they're not really understanding the, uh, the, the importance and, and how essential poetry is. I'll be honest, I think it's a problem of volition and, and it's cyclical in the sense that I think most of the teachers I know, I know some incredible like high school teachers and most of the incredible high school teachers I know who are English teachers really love poetry and teach it and it's a big part of the curriculum. But from a lot of the conversations I've had, a lot of the teachers are, even the English teachers are kind of afraid of poetry and certainly aren't reading a lot of contemporary poetry and not because they're not brilliant, <laughs> not brilliant readers, brilliant thinkers, but because they weren't taught to either, right? So it's this cyclical problem. Like if you're not, you know, I mean, I know people who graduate with English lit PhDs who, who haven't read any contemporary poetry. They maybe read older stuff, but like that blows my mind. <laughs> Well, that's very interesting. I mean, I, you know, for, for me, actually, doing all these interviews, poets were initially, because uh, this started out to be just visual artists, and then it's all by reference. People refer other people, and, and I began interviewing more and more poets, and poets were uh, the most intimidating for me uh, initially, <laughs> not so much now, because I thought, um, this is for hard the to grasp. Worse, that's I, why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could talk about paintings, <laughs> which is pretty weird to do, talking about art where you don't see any art and... and, and and then, but 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 poems seem to be a kind of um, yeah world that's not so so easy to access. And I, and I don't know why I say that, but that that may be because of all the things that you're talking about. It's cyclical exactly nature. Exactly why? Because oh, painting totally. and art is hard to access too. Nobody understands what abstract work is about. Or yeah, or it's not like it's not work. esoteric. Also, but people are less afraid. You know, <laughs> people think because design is part of their daily lives, right? So they think that 
even, even, they think they're even allowed, which they are, to look at something abstract and be like, oh, that's stupid, I could do it. But even that is like <laughs> engagement with it, not fear, you know what I mean? Or maybe that comes from fear, but still, it's, it's this interesting sense of like, the world is full of things I'm looking at, and so that's just another thing I'm looking at, whereas poetry, it's like, it seems like this whole other universe. And also poets are insufferable, and also, I mean, I love them, but they are, and also, we are a little... How are they, how, how are they insufferable? Because my, my point of view as a, as, a, as a visual artist is when, when um, I've had this thought for a while, but when I go to uh, parties, or when I used to go to parties of writers and artists, I always thought, Writers seem to be poets. Writers seem to be talking about like things, ideas, whereas visual artists tend to be talking about themselves and, and, and their work. Is is that is that inaccurate? I mean, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think maybe it's just everybody thinks that about their own genre. And also, of course, Brainerd, I'm being tongue in cheek about it. Like they're not really insufferable, but I think part of it is that our field, our particular genre, has been weirdly invested in being insular, like. Like, as much as I'm, I'm really mad about the fact that poetry sort of is, holds a wall up that keeps people out, there has been, like, a weird benefit to the tiny group of publishing, like, published or publishing poets that exist because there's competition for jobs and there's all this other stuff. So the more people that come in from the outside who don't have these ivory tower credentials, the scarier it becomes, which is not how I think about that. But there is this kind of... Uh, I think maybe it's subconscious or maybe it's conscious. I'm not sure. But this desire to keep things a little bit hermetic when it comes to, or to use words like hermetic for no reason. <laughs> but, like, um, but I still think we're a fun bunch, to be honest. Um, and, and honestly, we're all artists here, right? You, them, the visual artists. So we all have the same narcissistic tendencies, potentially. Um, if you really believe that what you have to say means something, then it's hard to not be both a little narcissistic, and then also a little bit neurotic and imposter syndrome And that's just my armchair psych, so do not take it seriously. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's, that's, that's so interesting. So um, it's great talking with you, and I, I want to ask you one more question, which is what are you reading at the moment? So because of my side hustle running book clubs, um, I read a lot more. I mean, I read a lot of poetry, but I read a lot more fiction than poetry, and... I don't know, such great books lately. Well, Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, Clara and the Sun is so good. Um, so that was good. Also, I've just recently read Frederick Bachman's Anxious People, which is also really good. But poetry-wise, my very, very, very favorite book is actually by a woman named Brie Rolf lately. I mean, my favorite book lately, and it's amazing. It's called Who's Going to Love the Dying Girl? And it's, it's out of this small press in Oregon, unsolicited press. And it's so good. It's very raw. And uh, the poet, who I know quite well and is is just a wonderful writer and person and thinker, um, was diagnosed with a rare form of cystic fibrosis that comes on later in life. Usually it's a very young person disease. (laughs) And so she kind of wrote from the perspective of where do you go with having this kind of life-threatening illness. But also, you know... She's this kind of, she's a teacher, in fact, but she's also this kind of rock and roll shit-talking person (laughs) who's really fantastic. And it's just the juxtaposition is incredible. It's like, read it. Just read it immediately. 
Thank you for that. Um, I will. I want to. I want to thank you so much for talking with me today, uh, Jessica. I, I wish you well, and I just want to thank you so much for sharing your your work and talking. Thanks for asking me. This is this is a fun chat. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>